Being quarantined in our homes, away from many, if not all, of our loved ones, is not a thing to celebrate. But it does afford us, despite real fears and discomfort, a great deal of time for meditation and reflection. Hopefully, God and other delicacies can be one of the ways in which you find a sliver of optimism in your day and the welcome warmth of connecting deeply with someone you've just met for the first time. everyone. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. I hope this show is finding you healthy, safe, and sane wherever you are in the world. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Stephen Boyer to the show. Stephen is a professional television, film, and stage actor. You've seen him on shows like Chicago Fire, The Blacklist, Happy-ish, FBI, and Orange is the New Black, in films like The Wolf of Wall Street and the recent hit film Hustlers. For those of you who are aware of the New York stage scene, Stephen needs no introduction. He has a long list of credits to his name, but most notably was nominated for a Tony Award and won an Obie Award for his leading role in the critically acclaimed Broadway show Hand to God. I met Stephen and had the great honor of spending two seasons alongside him on our beloved little TV show Trial and Error. He is a dear friend, and I am genuinely giddy to have him on the phone right now. Welcome to the show, Stephen. It's great to be here in my own apartment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, man. Oh, son of a bitch. But you know what's great about this is that I got my shit together to start making phone calls. So I started the podcast, and I, I was just having everybody come into the room. And then when this happened, and it forced me to get with like everybody else in the podcast world and get on the phone. And it has allowed me to connect with my buddies who I wouldn't have been able to get into the studio anyway, because you're in New York. So right. it's, it's compelled me to reach out to buddies I wouldn't have been able to, to chat with. And I am just thrilled to have you on the phone, man. Um, thanks. I feel like during quarantine, I've talked to people and FaceTimed and Zoomed and house partied with people all across the country that are friends that I don't normally see. And it made me think, why have I not been doing this before we were all forced to stay in our homes? I could have been doing this. My friends that are in other cities and other parts of the country, I could have FaceTimed with them regularly, but I, I didn't. But now that we're all at home, I'm like, how am I going to break up the day I'll call so-and-so in Baltimore or I'll call someone in Los Angeles or I'll call someone in Columbus. And it's like, it never occurred to me to do that before. I wonder if it means that it'll make us rethink. So my angle on this, I'm interested to hear what you have to say about this, but you're compelled to hang out with the people that are near you because you'll be there in person. And it's not to say that you don't love the people that are near you. But if you had to choose when you were stuck in quarantine who you were going to Zoom with, knowing that you had to Zoom with someone who was down the block as much <laughs> yeah. as someone who was across the country, we're all kind yes. of choosing to be with some of our best or closest people who are across the country. And sometimes I'm Zooming with someone who's a dear friend of mine that lives in Los Angeles. But most of the time, I'm Zooming with people who aren't here. And it makes me wonder if my wife and I are compelled to go hang out somewhere, mm -hmm. if we'll instead choose to Zoom at home with someone who's far away from us, whereas before we would have just gone out with a friend who's near us because we could go be with them in person. Yeah, I wonder that too, because I mean, I've had some long, fun nights where I'm like playing 
games and doing trivia and stuff with people that are spread all over the country. And it's been a blast and it feels very similar. Well, the pandemic gave us something. (laughs) I, I have to bring this up. You talked about, you know, who you are stuck in quarantine with. And my wife, Emily, and I, she brought this up. She's like, let's play a game. If you had to pick anyone other than me to be stuck in quarantine with, who would you pick? And I'm like, I really thought about it. And I weighed all the different factors of quarantine life with someone. And I came up with an answer that I think cannot be beat. And that is Giada De Laurentiis. I unfortunately don't get this reference. I don't know this person. She is a Food Network host. She can make food. <laughs> She's, <laughs> she can make food out of anything. And she is gorgeous. <laughs> so it's going to be Giada for me. How did your wife react? She was like, okay, I, I can see where you're coming from. I get it. I get it. And and I'm who, like, did who, she, who did she pick? <laughs> she picked one of her friends. And oh, I was like, what are your friends? sweet. What does she bring to the table? Does <laughs> yeah, she right. have survival skills? <laughs> Can she bake? Because like right now, baking's important. Okay, well, so then this is a wonderful transition. Uh, what did you have for breakfast? Are you making cool breakfasts for yourself? I am not a big breakfast eater. I have coffee. <laughs> That's it. How many cups of coffee will you drink before you eat anything? Uh, one and a half. Okay. I drink coffee in the morning. I don't need a lot of it. I can actually just have like half a cup of coffee and coast and I'm okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Until lunch. Lunch is big. I'm a big sandwich maker. Today I made quesadillas with leftover homemade chorizo that I made last night. (laughs) No, you didn't. I made chorizo quesadillas and that's (laughs) leftovers. My wife eats savory right out of the gate. Are you one of those people? Would you prefer a savory to a yeah. breakfast? Any, always. Like to a classic breakfast thing? I prefer savory always. If you I go not, out, you're getting bacons or the hams or the... No, no oh, what I'm am I talking bacon. about? Do you get bacon and ham? Yeah, because... Well, we're oh, going to yeah. get into this, but I couldn't remember what elements of Jewish cuisine if you... Oh, if, if I'm here to any of that stuff, yeah. Oh, no, no, no. I'm not okay. sure. I got to have like a bowl of granola, a piece of peanut butter toast, a bowl of granola... I do love a good peanut butter toast, but that's kind of savory. I mean, it's very fatty. That's true. It's, it's very fatty. Yeah. Oh, God. So good. Had one this morning. The peanut butter gets all melty. Oh, my God. <laughs> one person. So I do the organic peanut butters, and I got into this a long time ago, but I didn't realize just how well you had to stir it. I thought I was doing it right, but I wasn't. I was leaving it way too compact. And a friend yeah, of mine yeah, who never yeah. had it uh, and wasn't a really big peanut butter fan I gave it to him and he took a bite of it and he was he looked at me and he was like, this is peanut butter steak. <laughs> it was, it was, he was like gnawing on it like you were gnawing on a steak. And it's true. I've never stopped thinking about organic peanut butter like peanut butter steak. I kind you of know, enjoy it. So here we are justifying the savory and the peanut butter again. I, th- I think you need to start a peanut butter podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it would be. You clearly have thoughts. <laughs> well, we'll ask the listeners if this is as compelling or more compelling than the other crap that I'm about to spit. <laughs> All right, man. Well, let's jump in. Let's jump in. How and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? Wow. How and when? I mean, when I was little, we would go to church. I grew up in Westerville, Ohio, suburb of Columbus. And we went to this Presbyterian church called Central College. And it centered a lot on holidays, the belief in 
God and the idea of God. So in a way, it's almost like the idea of God was sort of intertwined with the idea of Santa Claus. Hmm. <laughs> because my family, I think they always, my parents always felt guilty that we did not go to church more. But basically, we went to church the bare minimum to stay out of hell, which is like Christmas Eve and Easter, right? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. When, That's when we went as a family. We went to the Christmas Eve services and we went on Easter Sunday. We would go a couple other times during during the year, but those were the big ones. Can I ask a question about that but without derailing sure. you? I, mean, I want to ask the question, but I don't want to derail you. Do you think, is that okay? Yeah. I have heard of this phenomenon. I know that this is a normal thing. So for me, my father and mother were quite devout and they remain so. And we went every week, plus I went to, to Catholic school my entire life. So I was also going on Wednesdays. So I went Wednesday and Sunday all the time. And then sometimes when we were younger, we'd even go extra days on high holy day type stuff. But what does it mean to you then to go into a church as a young, what's the energy you're going into the church with? It sounds to me like, and you'll have to correct me, but what you're telling me is essentially you're going in there not to go to hell, more so than you're going in there to celebrate the amazing element of Christmas or the amazing. Here's the thing. That was really just like, my joke about the thing. But honestly, the the concept of hell did not exist for us. We went to a Presbyterian church that on Christmas Eve would do this like candlelight service while a soloist sang, Oh, Holy Night. And so for me, Mm. it felt like a very hallowed place because it was beautiful. It was candlelit. Everyone was quiet. The music was beautiful. Everyone got dressed up. It was important. So it had an importance. I didn't see my dad put on a suit unless we were going on Christmas Eve. I knew that there was a reverence to this place and to this act of attendance and and worship. And I think that the beginning of when I really can remember going, I was probably like uh, four because I would go to the nursery school, you know, Sunday school uh, where we would make lambs out of construction paper and cotton balls and Elmer's glue. Mm. And on Palm Sunday, they would give you a palm frond and you'd be like, mom, I got a palm frond. (laughs) It was kind of like an extension of, of preschool at that point. But I think the idea, the concept of God sunk in on like Christmas Eve's, the quiet and the the reverence made it sink in that that this this was important. Yeah, that sounds really beautiful. So then how did you see them live with that or how was it instilled in you to live with that outside of Christmas and Easter when you were young? Um it wasn't. Religion was not talked about so much and God was talked about very little. So much so that I was hungry for something more, for more of a talk about that. And so when I was, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, I I really wanted to read about different religions, world religions. I wanted to read about uh, aspects of Christianity that I didn't know about. I think my mom sort of noticed this in me. And I remember... I was maybe in eighth grade or something. And one of the things I got at Christmas 
was a box that had a bunch of paperbacks of The Pilgrim's Way and something about uh, Kabbalah, <laughs> something about the Tibetan Book of the Dead, another thing of the Bhagavad Gita. And it was all these different books about aspects of different world religions. She knew that I would be into all of this. That's very cool. But religion, and specifically like Christianity, Jesus and God and stuff, was not talked about really in my house when I was growing up. Which is funny, you know, my parents met in church. They met doing a church play together. Wow. When they were in high school. Did they grow up in the town that you were raised in? Well, they grew up in different parts of Columbus. Uh, My dad grew up in Bexley. It's funny. Bexley is the Jewish suburb of Columbus that is like 80 to 90% Jewish. And my dad was like the only goy in his elementary school class, which somehow I think informed his social life and his sense of humor and therefore informed mine. And then my mom grew up in a different part of Columbus, but they went to the same church. And then you have... How many siblings? I have two. I'm in the middle. Uh, I have an older brother and a younger sister. I'm in the middle. So technically, the middle child is supposed to be the black sheep and the one who rebels. So basically, I rebelled in the most polite way possible by just simply moving away. (laughs) Yeah. I'm the middle child, too. Yeah. I like, too, that your rebelling was getting more interested in religion than the family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, basically. Yeah. So the the book thing from your mom is cool. That's like an early affirmation from your parents that's basically saying, we might not be giving this to you as much as you need it, but we're happy to let you go down the road if you want to. So I have two questions I kind of want to ask, and I'm not sure which one is more interesting to you. One is, when's the next major sort of threshold jump for you thinking about your chronological timeline of of your spiritual journey or your spiritual thought, the evolution of your spiritual thought? The other one was, were there any kind of formative challenges to your childhood? Like you butted heads with this sibling or this parent or butted heads with people in school or there was something that later informed your spiritual journey in some way? I don't know. For me, my thinking about my spiritual journey, it's interesting. It, it It has less to do with religion and more to do with empathy and humanism in a way. I always felt compelled to do moral things, you know, do good works in a way, but it wasn't because of a religious, you know, commandment or dogma or anything. But in my mind, I sort of would connect the doing of good works with some sort of spirituality, like some sort of connectedness with some larger idea of humanity or collective unconscious or something, it, fe- it made me feel more connected to everyone on earth when I did, quote unquote, good things. Mm. I sort of started making a religious idea for myself that is almost like Star Wars in nature <laughs> of just... <laughs> The force is everywhere around us. It connects us. It binds us all together. And, and you know, it was like very like <laughs> nebulous, like empathy, togetherness, yada, yada. But I wasn't like going to, to church or, and I wasn't reading 
so much. So it it was really just me feeling deep teenage feelings. But I think it was my senior year of high school, I was dating a girl who was very religious and her dad worked in in the church and she wanted me to become more religious. <laughs> and um, of course... Well, my girlfriend wants me to become more religious. I I better do it because <laughs> I want to be. This will help me get further down the road. <laughs> yes. Let's leave it at that. And I went to this program. You kind of go sleep over at this church for like two or three nights, sure, and you just okay. stay there. Yeah, it's like with, a retreat. Yeah, with like twenty, thirty other guys. They're all in your age range, and. It was called Chrysalis. And Mm. Chrysalis was like this program that by the end of the three days, you are kind of so filled with the spirit that... You emerge. You emerge, right? Yeah. And so I emerged from that thinking I knew all the answers. I knew everything. (laughs) And I was like, this is it. Up until that point, I'd, I'd sort of considered myself in some ways, agnostic, because I was waiting for, I'm like, I want proof. Faith is not good enough. I need proof. I need a sign. I need a sign. And I feel like this chrysalis program, at the end of it, there's a ceremony, and I, you know, was overwhelmed with feeling. Wow. And the overwhelming feeling I was like, aha, that's the sign. This Mm. is the sign. I feel it. I know it's true. This is the way. (laughs) How old were you at that time? I was 17. 17, okay. Yeah, it was my senior year of high school. And so then I was like, yeah, yeah. I thought I'd like been saved. Because it was sort of an, you know, evangelical sort of uh, program. Okay, okay. And then I went to school in New York City. I left home. And I held on to it for a while. And I still dated that same. Oh, you uh, held on to the relationship. Girl, yeah. for a couple of years. And then, you know what actually happened with this relationship? You want to know what really happened, Nick? I mean, Stephen, <laughs> I wouldn't normally show my cards like this, but... I want to take a break, and I was waiting, like, is this going to be where you're about to jump off on the big relationship story? And if you are, we should get into that after the break. Let's do it. Okay, this is the jumping off point. Okay. Everybody, we'll be back in just a minute. Hey there, if you're one of the fans listening to the show right now on iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you took a second to just scroll to the bottom, hit five stars on the ratings, wrote a one to two sentence review. It really helps the show find new listeners, and it means a lot to me because I love getting your feedback. Thanks. All right, everybody, we're back with Steven, and we're about to catch up to college and what I imagine is the dissolution, what I, what I know is the dissolution, because this what is not ta- the girl you married. What are you married. talking about? <laughs> um, all right, dive in, man, dive in. Okay, so I went to college. Things kept going. We stayed together for probably two and a half years. Wow. 
while is this I was when you're at college. Juilliard? Are you at Juilliard yeah. now? Okay. Yes. So you're I'm in at, your training too. I was at Juilliard in New York City, surrounded by actresses and dancers. And <laughs> yeah, man, you're in like <laughs> this is a great moment in your this life is, structure. And every time my long distance girlfriend and I would meet up, we would have sex. Okay. <laughs> and all right. And then I was gonna. After, I didn't want to ask that question, but I was wondering. Because I'm just you were so gonna religious. tell you. <laughs> okay. Good. Thank you. <laughs> and then afterwards, she would tell me how guilty she felt. Oh. How guilty? How guilty I should feel? Oh. How terrible it all was. We did that for over two years. Oh. And I was like, "What is going on here?" And. I never bought into the evangelical idea of born again virgin or saving yourself for the promise ring because I always felt like one of the great ways that we as human beings have to show our love and affection for each other is through physical contact. Yeah. And I don't think I don't think you need to feel guilty about showing your affection in that way. And at this point, you know, we were 20, we must have been 21 years old. I can't have someone who I have been in a relationship with for so many years make me feel like there is someone somewhere who is judging the two of us for doing this. I couldn't believe it. And I refuse to believe it. And that relationship dissolved. And suddenly my faith in, certainly in that branch of Christianity really started wavering because I'm like, is this the deal breaker? Is this like God is love, but only if you do this? Mm. The ideas of having qualifiers attached to the idea of uh, unconditional love from a higher being, it just never, ever sat well with me. I'm like, that's not right. That That's not the way it should be. And I don't believe that's the way it is. I don't believe that anyone is irredeemable. I don't believe that there's an act that you can do that is going to, quote unquote, damn you. I just don't. Because I believe that human beings are at heart good. It's interesting, man. What I like about this story is it's almost like you needed one of the things that my friends and I would talk about when we talk about a religious upbringing, because we all were friends that grew up in these private Catholic educations together, Mm -hmm. is that you talk about the flint and steel in a way. This structure is the thing that I butted my head against and it sharpened my viewpoints on the matter. And because you didn't really have a strong overarching structure that you were raised in. Yeah. You kind of sought, whether it was conscious or unconscious, I I don't know. It sounds like maybe it was a little bit of both, that you fell in love with this woman, probably under the auspices of thinking that she would help show you the way to a deeper sense Mm -hmm. of spirituality, a commitment to God. Mm -hmm. That was certainly something that drew me to her, was her, her absolute faith. And then you stay in it long enough essentially to hone all of these arguments that you probably couldn't say out loud (laughs) that you had in your head all the time until the very end of your relationship when it sounds like 
it sounds like you exploded in a way as far as your connection to life. And it's almost like the true chrysalis is, is you came out of this relationship and it sounds like you were the you you wanted to be on a different journey. Absolutely. And I felt unmoored. I have tended to go through life with long-term relationships and, you know, hence going away to college in a different city and staying with the high school relationship for over two years of that college experience. I find structure and strength in connecting to one person that is your person, Mm. which is why I think having that one person tell you that what you just did is really (laughs) kind of horrifying in some ways is awful. It just felt awful. Yeah, yeah. It was this breaking point. And I went on from that for probably the next 10 years of my life with really no religion and no kind of belief system. Not that I didn't have things that I believed in, but just no set. We're talking about God, right? But mm-hmm. it's I, I feel like I'm kind of equating it with religion. And I don't think that that's necessarily what I don't equate God with religion in in my mind. I guess what I'm trying to say is I did not have any sort of formal religious beliefs for about the next 10 years of my life. I still had ideas about spirituality and ideas about God. Most of those ideas consisted of me, again, questioning, vacillating back and forth about the existence of God, about how active God is in our lives, if God is active in our lives at all, if God is a presence, if God is an energy, if God is the laws of physics in the universe, you know, Mm. what is it, this thing that we call God? So I think for probably the next 10 years of my life after that, I just, I, I would be what you would call agnostic because I just didn't know. Which brings me to sort of the current moment. Before we get there. Yeah. This is your 20s, essentially. This is almost exactly like the age of 20 to the age of 30, pretty much. That's right. Yes. You're in New York the entire time. Uh Uh-huh. I know that you had another long relationship in there. We don't have to go into it. But the point is, is that, you know, you're doing things like just getting older. You're just living. You're becoming more independent. You have another relationship. I was out of college. I was living with someone for pretty much the entirety of my 20s. You're soaking in New York. You're gaining ground in your career. You're becoming an artist that you want to be. I'm an actor. I know what it's like. Some of my greatest moments of resonance are when I get to be performing in front of people. I imagine you're soaking in the joy of all of the many questions you get to answer when you're in your 20s. You're in New York and you're trying to figure out what's my career going to be. Yes. I have much of that same experience. So it feels Uh like that's kind of what you're saying. You know, you're taking an enormous amount of art. You're taking in the city. You're taking in life experience. What is that next threshold moment? Again, came from a disillusion of a past relationship. Okay. I was basically with someone for the entirety of my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that, I love that everyone also in the show is both directly and indirectly getting the story of your sex life. <laughs> like, why, why not? <laughs> oh, right. Okay, so, go on. It's quarantine, you know? We're all at <laughs> yeah, home. Exactly. Right, We're all right. just hanging out. 
We all need somebody to talk to. Oh, God. I'll do more sex talk on my peanut butter podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard for me to spit in a lot of sex talk into this one, but I I, I know I'll find ways to do it in the peanut butter podcast. (laughs) Yeah. So that relationship that was almost a decade of my life crashes and burns in a fiery inferno (laughs) of depression and despair. (laughs) So I was totally at the end of my rope. I started working at a theater for like no money here in New York called Ensemble Studio Theater. And the first playwright I worked with was my wife. Oh, okay. It was Emily Chaddock Weiss. And Mm. I worked with her there on the very first show that I did at that place. And I decided to stick around that theater because I liked what was going on there, but also mostly to be around her. Yeah. And... That began the latest, most current leg of my spiritual journey, which is my delving into Reform Judaism and my subsequent conversion to Reform Judaism. Amazing. This is going to be the second break, and the third segment will start off with that. Amazing. We'll be back with Stephen in just a minute. By the way, God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com, and I'll put you on the list. All right, everybody, we're back with Stephen and the final segments. I got to come into your life during this period, so I'm excited to get to talk to you more about what led to this and just to have you talk a little bit more extensively about how it feels. I got to celebrate a Passover with you, so... That's right. Yeah, we did when we were in Vancouver, but so I should lead Uh, everybody in. He meets the woman who will become his wife, and he converts to Reform Judaism. So tell me about that experience and what that means for you as you begin almost in some ways not only coming to terms with it yourself and what that must have been in an excitement and maybe some maybe some anxieties, I don't know. And then also just in some ways must have been strange to reveal yourself in that way to the people that had known you so long in your life. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I remember being on the phone being like, okay, I'm going to tell my parents that I'm going to start this conversion process and I'm going to tell them on the phone. And it was such a big deal for me. Hmm. And when I got my parents on the phone, I was like, I'm going to convert to Judaism. And my mom was like, oh, Steve, we I knew that that was going to happen. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, how did you know? How did you know? I didn't know because there was never, because there was never in my relationship, there was never any, it was never even suggested to me. It was not a precondition to marriage in any way. It was never brought up. Emily never idea. needed this. She never ne- needed you to be never. in this way. It was not mentioned even one time. Yeah, that's cool. Um, So by anyone from her, her family, nobody mentioned this. I just, it was something that I wanted to do. But my mom saying that was so, I was shocked because I'm like, how how could you know? I didn't know. She's like, oh, you know, I just feel like we're glad that you have found something that resonates with you. Yeah. She knew It goes back to like the box of books under the Christmas tree. She knew that I was searching 
for some religious or spiritual practice that resonated with me. And so she was just happy that I had landed, you know? Yeah, that's really sweet. Yeah. It's a cool moment of like being known by a parent, right? <laughs> yes. To be known is a cool Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. For as many dear people as you have in your life, there are only those handful of people that really know you, can see you before you even get there. That's very cool. So we, we, what am I talking about? So I, <laughs> you and we, we, Yahweh. me and all the people in my head, <laughs> yeah, all these characters I. that I play, <laughs> we all oh. packed our bags and went to synagogue. <laughs> this is a total sidebar, but I had to say that I actually wondered if I would bring up or if there'd be an opportunity for me to mention how much I had adored the games where I'd play Stephen Boyer jukebox on set. And I would just ask you to be a voice or a character <laughs> and and you would oblige. And we would do that yeah. right before a take. Oh. Did you catch the the Robin Williams coming out right there? Yeah, 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 exactly. I had written yeah. down, I was like, maybe I'll get him to do a Michael J. Fox. Um. <laughs> but the visual, you need the visual. I know, that's the, the thing. You need the visual. It's that's tough. right. It's that's tough. right. I know. That's why I didn't open with that, but I just had to say Yeah. Okay. Box, that's funny. I start going with her, and you know, Emily is from Brooklyn. Her entire family's in Brooklyn. On Jewish holidays, high holidays, I would go with her and her family to synagogue. Like I'd go to her house for Passover. And so it was this this sort of like soft introduction to Reform Judaism. And there was this great rabbi at Brooklyn Heights Synagogue named Serge Lip. And Serge would talk, he would give these sermons that were always very, they were very connected to the here and now. They were about what was happening in our world right now. They were about what was happening around us. They were about social issues. They were about what is affecting humanity and what is affecting the least fortunate among us in this moment. And that felt very real. I'm like, in my mind, I would be like, yes, this is what religion ideally should be. It's not just a bomb to make you feel good. It's using a belief system to affect positive change in the world. The basement of the synagogue was a homeless shelter for the entire year, a volunteer-run homeless shelter where they would bring in 20 guys every day. Volunteers would cook them dinner, and then you would all sleep over on cots with them. And the members of the synagogue ran it year-round. That is the kind of good works that it's like, this is what I felt had been missing in other religious experiences in my life. Like, I would hear someone talk about soul, talk about their soul, talk about the souls of all of us, but wouldn't put their money where their mouth is and do work to lift up other souls, mm. you know? And then I, I found out about this. This is all just from me going to like holidays and things. This pillar, one of the main tenets of Judaism is this, this phrase called tikkun olam. And tikkun olam means to heal the world. And the idea is that inherent in Reform Judaism is this idea of questioning, this idea of 
none of us can really know what's out there. None of us can really know what's going to happen after we die. So we can spend our entire lives arguing about it, questioning it. You have an opinion, you have an opinion, you have an opinion. You all can be wrong. You all can be right on some level. We're never, ever going to know during this lifetime. And so the idea of tikkun olam is to heal the world now. It's to make heaven on earth now. Because all we really know we have is the here and now, is just this world. So the idea of religion as a promise of something hereafter never sat right with me. The Mm. idea of religion focusing on the only thing we know for sure, which is the things we can touch, see, taste, smell, that is right in front of us. You know, fixing that to make that the best it can be. I was like, this is what I can get behind. It felt very humanist to me. Hmm. And then the other moment of going to synagogue uh, that made me really want to look into this more is one of these sermons was started. The rabbi said, he's like, I know a lot of you, you know, in this congregation probably have doubts about the existence of God from time to time or all the time. Who knows? He's like, some of you probably even might consider yourself agnostic or even atheist. And I just thought to myself, what is he talking about? I never (laughs) heard anyone addressing a a congregation in a house of worship, like saying those words. I was like, whoa, 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 this is out of line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I couldn't believe it. And the I, so that's when I found out that the idea, being Jewish is not dependent upon, it's not conditional upon your belief in God. It's just not. And that shocked me. And it sort of, it spurred me on to learn more. It freed you. Because I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not like you're with us or against us kind of dogma. It's taking the spirit of questioning as far as it can go, which is like, who knows? (laughs) Maybe we're right, maybe we're wrong. It's why Judaism doesn't proselytize. They're not trying to find more people to join their faith because they're like, hey, why should we think we have all the answers and other people are wrong? We don't know. And that attitude, I just thought was fantastic. It felt like what I had believed for a lot of my life and never had an umbrella that it fit under. And uh, yeah, so I started going to like Barnes and Noble and going into the religion section and finding books like, so you want to convert? <laughs> I would have half an hour and I'd go to the bookstore and I'd, and I'd look that up and I'd read about it. And I did all this without talking to Emily. And then I think it was after we were already engaged, I was like, I want to convert. And she's like, what? <laughs> and she was shocked. 
She was and like, was look, like, you can just come to the services. It's fine. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> I mean, seriously. That was actually made very clear to me. I remember going to services and Emily's mom <laughs> would like whisper at me. She'd be like, see them? Their husband? Buddhist. Never converted. It's fine. We, do, we love all everyone. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great, great, great. Thank you. Thank you. And then it'd be like, see them? Half Jewish? Husband? Not Jewish at all. This is, it's all good. It's all great here. <laughs> I was like, okay, great. So like, so now I'm was, spiting uh, you. <laughs> no, I know it was like almost made. It was made clear early on. Like, really, this is not something anyone expects. Yeah. Why was it something that was so necessary for you? I, well, first of all, I knew that I wanted to have a family. I knew that we were going to to raise our children uh, in the Jewish faith, and I knew that. I I saw how much Judaism supported and lifted up and bolstered Emily, how much she gained from it, how much it informed her spiritual life, how much it fed her. And it started to feed me in the same way. I think the phrase I used with Emily, because she was like, you know, you can just come to the holidays and we can raise our kids Jewish and it's fine and you don't need to convert. And I was like, I don't want to do this halfway. I want to be on the same team. (laughs) I want to be on the same team. It just feels like I needed to do the conversion process, which is a year and a half of reading and meeting with the rabbi and questioning and soul searching and discussions and, and education. And I was like, I feel like I need this to sort of complete this journey, which is something that I want to do. And it's not even completing the journey. It's beginning the journey because it's the rest of my life is going to be the completion of this journey. You know, it's, it's not over till it's over. (laughs) And I was like, I want to commit myself to this because it has impacted me and had had such an effect on me. And it feels so right. It just felt so right. Mm, That's cool, man. So what is the experience like? Like, what is the service? What's the ceremony like? Oh, man. So, I mean, the conversion process is mostly class. Because I'm an actor, my schedule's so weird, I couldn't have like an organized class because my schedule was so messed up. But I ended up meeting just one-on-one with the rabbi for 18 months, maybe. Once or maybe twice a week. So it was an ongoing thing. But then I answered a lot of questions. I wrote, it was a lot of different sort of essay questions. You know, it wasn't a quiz. It was like, how do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? How do you feel about this? Have you found that there are certain prayers that have special significance to you? How do these holidays uh, make you feel? Or do any of them have special, significant resonance? Why did you want to uh, convert to Judaism? What, what made you want to make such a, a, a big life decision? And then you go in front of what's called a bet din, which was a panel of three rabbis, and because it's Reform Judaism, two of the rabbis were women and one of them was a lesbian. And I was like, these are my people. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I was like, this is, this feels right. <laughs> and uh, right on. We met and talked, and they talked amongst themselves, and they were like, this feels very genuine. And then I went to a mikvah, which is a pool of water that is, it's a pool of salt water. Salt water comes, I believe, from Israel, like from the sea. They ship it in gallons? Look, I'm not really sure about this, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure I mean, it's that shipped like they would over lie like a something. big, maybe it's the kind of thing where like they dump in like a gallon and it, and it makes, and now the water sure, is, yeah. is whatever. But So you go to idea, your local YMCA cold plunge. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's a bunch of different, uh, like there's changing rooms and then there's the pool. And you go this is the in pool. the synagogue? No. Though so some synagogues, some like old school, you know, I think more conservative synagogues do have a mikvah huh. attached. But you, you go to a mikvah when you have, a, like, you before you get married or before, you know, you go before, it's a big life change. It's so funny because I, I love all of the, the crossover between different religions and, like, the idea of dipping yourself into a pool of water to purify yourself mm. is, like, so central to baptism. And now here it is in, in Judaism. Well, I mean, you know, so, Judaism had it first. Yeah, right, right. So you go and you have to be completely unadorned, right? You're buck naked. I didn't have oh, any. wow. No contact lenses in. You know? And how many people are there? Yeah. Like, it's just like, just the one rabbi is there? It was like just me, me and the rabbi. Wow. He turned his back. I went into the water. I submerged myself. I came up. He said, repeat after me. And I said a prayer in Hebrew. And he was like, Congratulations, you're Jewish. Wow. And I left. I felt like I was like glowing. <laughs> I mean, it wow. felt it felt I was like, huh, this is uh this does feel different. It's like how when I got married, I'm like, you know what? We've been living together. How is being married going to feel different? I don't think it's actually gonna feel different. And then you get married, you go through the ceremony, and yeah. something about the act, the act of ceremony, yeah, does something that you do feel different. And so I left there feeling different because I knew that I had committed myself to something for the rest of my life. And we left and we went, it was on the Upper West Side. There's different mikvahs around New York City. We went, we, we ate some deli. <laughs> oh yeah, great. Gosh. Yeah. Wow, that's great. That's great, yeah. man. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Sure, sure. I remember we, you know, I remember during trial and error, we would talk during downtimes. We, we ended up talking about religion. And I think I ended up talking about Judaism a lot. I feel like now I talk about Judaism to my friends in a way that no one ever really talked to me about it. It's like someone who undergoes the, uh, the citizenship process. It's like afterwards they have all this fresh knowledge about the founding of America and, you know, about uh, civics and about government that they, that they want to sort of spread that knowledge around. I have all this fresh education that I now, it just keeps coming up. It just keeps coming up in conversation. I'm like, well, you know, Jakun Olam, 
heal the world. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the difference between someone making a, an active choice to be something. Yes. And then having just been born into it. Because, you know, if you're born yes. American, you're born American. You don't That's have right. to, you can get a D on your social studies or you can get an A, but I mean, you got to get an A to pass the citizenship course. And then if you're Jewish, it's not that you're any better of a Jewish no, but like they're but member Jew, than anybody Jew by else. Choice is yeah, like, it's a different thing, and it has precedence in the Bible. Like the Book of Ruth is basically like she converted. Oh, and so it's has Old Testament biblical precedent of I throw my lot in with this community of people. Yeah, because these are my people. These are the people that I I resonate with, and that's that's the Book of Ruth. That's why I think it's it's so great that, you know, Judaism does not seek converts, but it has it has Old Testament uh, precedent. Yeah, man, that's really cool. And in telling the story that you did here today, and I'm sure it's similar stories with friends at different times when they're asking about these questions, you, you also are essentially somewhat of a diplomat for the religion. Right. Yeah. You allow people like, myself to get to ask you questions about the experience from an adult's perspective who made a choice. You were at one time considered, you know, you would have called yourself, it seems like at one time, a secular humanist. You would have called yourself a Christian right. at one time. Here right. you have these examples. It's not to say that your way is the is the only right way. That's the, the opposite of what you're saying. But it uh -huh. is, an, you are representing an example of that this is a choice that a person can make if you care about it in this way. And I can tell you why I cared about it and why I made these choices and how it went for me and what it meant. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of people, myself included, are curious about hearing people coming to these decisions as an adult. You know, that reminds me of when we were filming season two and we had the Passover Seder mm. that, that you came to. and We actually had it at my apartment, I think. Yes, that's right. In Vancouver. Yeah. Um, and Kristen Chenoweth came too. And, mm -hmm. and Amanda. Yeah, so many folks. And at the end, towards the end of it, you traditionally do this song. You talk about the concept of Dayenu. I love Dayenu. And Dayenu is such a great concept, which is basically Dayenu is, it would be enough. You know, if I was just born Dayenu, if I had a loving family, Dayenu, if I met the love of my life and got to experience love, Dayenu. It's like, that would be enough. If, if that's where everything ended, it would be enough. Mm -hmm. If I had my, my son and if I got to experience that, that love, Dayenu. If I saw him grow up, Dayenu. At each step, at each moment, you can be grateful if this is the best that there is, it would still be enough. Life would be worth living if this was the best that there is. Dayenu, it is enough. And I remember Chris, everybody was like, wow, this is, that's such a great concept. But, but Kristen Chenoweth really latched onto it so much so that like, I remember months later getting a text from her, like in a text chain, and she'd be like, if we just got to film season two, Dayenu, y'all. Dayenu, <laughs> <Yeah>. y'all. <laughs> If we just got to air the first episode of season two, Dayenu, Dayenu, it was so good. <laughs> you know? Oh, man. Yeah, that was really beautiful. I've definitely taken that with me from that time. I thought that, that was a really extraordinary evening for me. I learned a lot 
in that evening. I've learned a lot from Jeff Astroff from having gone to oh, his yeah. Shabbats. I love the Dayenu. I love that concept and I love that, Me too. that prayer. Me too. And you were very, uh, you represented it then as you did today, that it's a gorgeous, it was a gorgeous way of us all being thankful in that moment <laughs> and creating you know, our own little family there too, which is beautiful. Yeah. And you know what? It's like you kind of make your own way because I remember I printed out the the Seder. I printed out a thing <laughs> online that was 30 minute Seder. Yeah. I'm like, here we go. <laughs> And I went to Kinko's and I printed out the 30-minute Seder. Well, it was you your first time running it too, right? Oh, for sure, yeah. Yeah. And you have to have you have to have the Seder plate. And one of the things on the Seder plate is a, a shank bone of a lamb that has been like roasted, that has been like burnt, right? Like okay. as, as a sim- symbolic part of the offering that you would make. You would burn an offering at the temple. Yeah. Didn't have the shank bone of a lamb. You know what I did have? I had a big bone from a giant piece of pork shoulder from a Filipino restaurant. And I'm like, this is not kosher at all. (laughs) It's a bone. I'm going to burn it and put it on the Seder plate. So I had a pork bone on the Seder plate because I'm like, you know what? Having the representation, making the plate, that's more important to me than the rule of law of what it exactly is. I mean, I don't keep kosher anyway. And I told Emily that she was like, what? Oh. You are, what? <laughs> She's like, you had a pork bone on the Seder plate? I'm like, yeah, but I had a Seder plate. We got to talk about it. We got to reference all the elements. And, you know, the show went on. You know, look, man, it was, it was for a bunch of Gentiles, right? I mean, there was only one person. Amanda was the only other person in the room, I think, that was Jewish, right? Oh, or was- man, I totally forgot. Is, is, I totally forgot that Amanda was Jewish. Yes. Yeah. Well, but she's yes. half Jewish and Jewish. And and in fact, for those of you listening to this, you can listen to her episode and she talks about her thing, but her mother's Jewish and her father is Christian. So she yeah, and, yeah right. So. But in the in the Jewish tradition, if your mother is Jewish, you according to Jewish law, you are a hundred percent Jewish. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So she knew all that stuff too. But it was a really wonderful yeah. experience of like bunch of people who are getting all of these traditions for the first time from a couple of people who had never done it on their own before. You know, it was really nice. I think we had, did we have like Chinese food? Or no, we had Indian. Yeah, we had Indian. Yeah, that sounds right. We had Indian. It was delicious. (laughs) Stephen, I, I'm tempted to ask one question and we'll just see how it fits in. I've asked this, especially I've been focusing on this more uh, during the pandemic, but it is what makes you despair and what gives you hope? Oh, this is, there, there are several things that, you know, make me despair. <laughs> I think first and foremost, the thing that, I mean, the word despair is a pretty loaded word. But when I think of despair, the thing that does fill me with despair is the idea of irreversible climate change. Mm. Because it's something that I have, I, you know, I, I follow a lot of climate scientists on social media. I read their, their papers and um, their, you know, essays about solutions for what I think is humanity's largest problem now. Because I feel like it is the problem that, it's the problem that supersedes all other problems because any issue that we are currently dealing with 
climate change, for lack of a better word, trumps all of them. Mm. Because you can write down whatever whatever you want on a piece of paper. But if you set fire to the piece of paper, you're, you're not, you're not going to write anything. The canvas upon which every other issue is painted is the earth. We can't do anything else unless we have a livable habitat for humanity, unless we can grow food, unless we can sustain society, unless we can thrive and flourish the way we have for centuries with, you know, regular seasons and weather patterns and a lack of horrible natural disasters. So I feel like this century is going to be the century of catastrophic climate change. And I'm very upset about that. And it causes me a lot of despair because I, I just, you know, had a a child. I am a father now. That being said, things that give me hope, one of the things that gives me hope is my son. Being with him, uh, raising him, nurturing him, seeing his joy, seeing the beauty that he sees in the world um, gives me a lot of hope. It shows me that humanity can thrive under any circumstances. I mean, right now we're in quarantine. He's a year and a half years old. He doesn't know what he's missing. And talk about making the best of it. He's still, you know, sucking up the world and all of its joy and all of its beauty. And that is inspiring and that gives me hope. Also, what gives me hope is seeing humanity sort of understand in spite of the bad actions of, uh, say, the federal government or other people that might want to act like this. It's no big deal or, hey, we're bored, we're bored by this pandemic, so it's over now. <laughs> yeah. In spite of that, in spite of the anti-science, anti-fact stance, people around the globe are being sensible, and they're doing what they can to fight this. And so I have hope that in the future, no matter what certain world governments might do to further exacerbate the problem of catastrophic climate change, that people, the majority of people, will unite to face it head on and take care of themselves and their loved ones before it's it's too late. And I think, you know, seeing the majority of people's reaction to this quarantine uh, has given me hope that that, that that is possible and that that will happen. That's lovely, man. That's good. <laughs> Stephen, thanks. Yeah. Thanks Thank for you. sharing, man. This was a really lovely story. It's so great to have you on the phone and so great oh, to get to connect with great. you again. Yeah, maybe someday we can see each other face to face. I love it. We'll do it through Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, man, someday. I've had the yeah. thought of how fun it would be for us to visit New York and come in and see your little boy. Oh my gosh, he's the best. Yeah. He's so fun. 
I love it, man. Well, let's talk a little bit after this, but let me say goodbye to the show, okay? Okay, sounds good. All right, thank you all for listening. This is like, I'm like, so we were boning and then we weren't. And then I'm like, what's up with my life? What's happening? It's called peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I don't know why that sounds filthy. It's peanut, peanut butter and jam me. Where do you want to be jammed? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God.